0: Cancel for maintenance. We not only parody our day to day tasks, but we also like to celebrate those who go above and beyond for our communities outside the line. Have you ever experienced such adverse events that you've said to yourself, Never again will I nor those around me go through such times again? Today, we bring along the non profit architect who shares with us how he overcame such adversities and how he now helps the helpers. This is Heroes Beyond the Line, part two. Our guest today is a model example of what it means to help the helper. He's an aircraft technician, naval flight officer, and runs a business that helps nonprofit organizations grow and reach their goals to help those in need. Please welcome the nonprofit architect, Travis Taco John Johnson. (laughs) <laughs>
1: Taco yeah, so John, you used my call sign on the show, so that's a that's a first for me. Go ahead and mark that down.
2: Perfect. <laughs> it's just, I think I does take the cake as the as the now the number one best call sign we've had on. Right. That's right. that's fantastic.
0: That is great. <laughs> All right, Mister Mister Taco John Johnson. <laughs> I'm sorry, I got I got to keep saying it. It's so funny. so uh travis uh tell us a little bit about yourself like uh you're in the navy and you also run a uh, business that helps nonprofit organizations grow develop and reach their goal which is helping others what uh, drove you to join the navy in the first place
1: uh well i joined the navy because my life was absolute garbage at the time i had just finished up 36 moves, 12 schools, six states, five foster homes. I survived two murder attempts and got in some pretty serious trouble with the law. And there was no future in the northern small northern Minnesota town I grew up in. If I count that as the town I grew up in, it was just the last town I happened to be in. And it wasn't, you know, there's only a couple of good decisions I've ever made in my life. Uh, Finding Jesus, joining the Navy and, and marrying my wife are easily the top three. And, you know, if it wasn't for the Navy, I really wouldn't be where I am today. I didn't have the opportunities. I didn't have the GPA. I didn't have the clean criminal record. Uh, I didn't have those things. I didn't have a foundation. And the Navy and the Lord and my wife really helped me build that foundation. You know, didn't matter what my past was. They allowed me to build and move forward. And I had the choice to do so. So I was very happy for all of those.
0: Wow. And you said 36 moves? Prior, yeah, prior the to the
2: Navy, Navy. Right now, five zero. So how old were you when you joined the Navy then?
1: I was 18. I graduated high school at 17. I took a year to find myself, and I found that all the civilian jobs I was eligible for it sucked. <laughs> so I joined a year later at 18.
2: Yeah, I understand that.
1: As an E-1 uh, ejection seat guy, and A-M-E.
0: Oh, A-M-E, he says. A-M-E. A-M-E. <laughs> uh, I, I gotta ask you, have you ever seen or heard of the Facebook group, uh, the stupid log?
1: Uh, I have. It's run by another Amy, and, and he's hilarious. That guy what?
2: is awesome. I love the chief character, okay. <laughs> Amy, too. <laughs> Get Man. the hell out! <laughs> so, 36 moves all before you were 18.
1: Yeah. So those of you that are a little slow on the math world, that's an average of two moves per year. Uh, And really, I graduated at 17. So it's just a little bit more than two moves per year. Uh, Twelve schools also. So in kindergarten, second grade, fourth grade and seventh grade, I was in three different schools during each of those school years. Wow.
2: Now, is that all in Minnesota or is that around the country or? Uh,
1: most of them were in Minnesota and then there was a time in seventh grade. Um, we moved like eight times that year, which was disgusting. Uh, one of those was homeschooling as we were on the road with a, a country band traveling the uh, upper Midwest. So we got to see Glorious North Dakota at the ugly edge of Montana into Wyoming before uh, we quit the band and then drove back to Minnesota.
2: Wow. holy cow wow right <laughs> and and I heard you say now apologize if if I'm bringing up bad memories, but two murder attempts yeah, I can't even fathom that to be honest with you,
0: yeah, same here, I mean, especially feeling all that before uh you've headed out into the world, I would say before before uh you finished high school, I mean, I can only imagine how much that just had an impact on you
1: yeah, at ten and fifteen wow then. Uh, at 10, my sister tried to kill me. And at 15, my mom tried to kill me.
2: Wow. Oh my God. Wow. So people are like,
1: Oh, I love my mom. How you know, you don't have a good relationship with your mom. How could you not like your mom?
2: Well, she did try to well, kill Well, me. I mean, you know. <laughs> uh, that's that's understandable uh from from your your end. That's um that's wild. I'm having yeah. trouble processing that. But right. uh, yeah, but, that's what but it's, it's supposed m- to be.
1: Right. It's supposed to be a hard thing to process. I got I was on a TV show with uh Josh Matee Berglin and, and Gratitude Unfiltered. Please feel free to check that out if you're listening to this. And it wasn't thirty seconds into the interview. That's a first question he asked, and he's just like, I, I got- I've got nothing to say. You got nothing. And he brings on like former prostitutes, former drug dealers, like all kinds of of things that people, you know, turning their lives around. And he's been doing this for a few years. And then here he is interviewing Travis, the nonprofit guy. And he's like, uh, so don't feel bad at all.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just, man, I I just, uh, I'm glad I, I'm glad I can't relate, but, uh, more glad that you made it through. And, uh, life is definitely, life is definitely way turned around for you now. Uh, you've 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 taken the right steps
1: oh yeah people like oh this thing is so stressful like is it or like are you getting killed right now is someone shooting at you no okay well let's just do this and move forward like how can you do that (laughs) well i've been through some things
2: right i mean your uh your outlook and positivity on life has got to be just leaps and bounds over the the next average person you know what i mean just from your experiences alone you 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 have a different perspective and different like no matter how much it like you said no matter how much it sucks eh, it's not really that bad
1: yeah that's not to say that's not to say that i'm going to discount someone having a bad day right sure sure that bad days don't happen uh and i'm definitely not saying that i'm not comparing my terrible story to someone else's terrible story right those those are the building blocks that make us who we are And, you know, just surviving, uh, you know, any story, whatever your stressor is, because you have people growing up in upper middle class and you've got one of the biggest groups of people that are that are overdosing on drugs. Right. Yeah. Um, And they have different pressures. It's not the same type of pressure. They have different expectations. They have different things that are wrong in their life. But. If you can show your kids love out there, if you can get your friends included and, you know, be part of the group is what most of us are searching for. If you can do that to your friends and family, then most of those problems just don't come up.
0: Right. That's that's very, uh, very impactful for you to say. Uh, I remember I think it was yourself that told me or I've heard it somewhere else where like you can't scale uh, what someone's feeling to yours or yours to theirs. Like because I, I see a lot of people fall into that where like well my day's bad but his is worse or his day is not as bad as mine so i should feel better kind of thing
1: different different things help different people cope with different things sometimes uh hearing a story like mine will you know remind and encourage someone that the story might not be that bad Mm -hmm. right but it might not be up to you as a person to go say well did you hear travis's story maybe you could you should suck it up that's right 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 don't do that right But there's there's little you know, things in there that can help us, remind us, keep us on track of, of keeping things in, in perspective, right? You didn't get the grade you wanted. You didn't talk to the girl. You got dumped. Whatever the thing is, it's a bad day, and it's okay to have a bad day. And it's okay to address a bad day. It's another thing to let that bad day get you down for a long period. Right. I know there's traumatic things out there that happen in a day. People that lose people in combat or come upon horrible situations or get abused or uh, among the other terrible things out there. Mm -hmm. But once it's happened, you can make the choice to take the active steps to choose to do something about it, whether it's, you know, Taking the steps you need to be mentally well with most days, if it's to do, try EMDR, which is the number one VA recommended method of getting rid of and addressing PTSD, or if it's some other positive action, you can choose to change a circle of people. You can choose to start pouring knowledge into yourself. You can choose to be a better person. All those things are within your power of choice. And I think my story really helps kind of highlight that
0: most definitely uh and in, in your case you went toward the navy now did you choose to go aviation or was the choice made for you
1: uh well it was my choice right it's always my choice like i uh, i was talking to my dad who was a sailor at the time he was a boiler tech working in the bowels of the ships um, <laughs> uh, you know, he's like, you should consider the military. And I was like, well, I don't want to carry everything I go or, you know, everything I own, everywhere I go, I don't want to get shot at. So the army and the Marines were off the table in my book, Fair enough. you know, and then I looked at the the air force and the Navy, there was no space force. yet, And coast guard really wasn't a thing where I was at. Um, and I looked, I went to the air force and they're like, do you have anything more than a traffic ticket? I was like, yes. They're like, see you later. So then i went <laughs> talk to the Navy. <laughs> You know, I went to talk to the Navy and I got in there and uh kept my criminal record and I kind of held it close to the vest until the very end. But like, like, oh, well, we never covered this thing. Well, really, I just kind of ignored it until they brought it back up to finalize their paperwork after I already uh, qualified for the nuke program and some other things. And I asked my dad, I was like, What what job should I have in the Navy? He's like, I don't know, but they treat those aviation boys pretty good. And I was like, perfect. Uh, sign me up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to sign up for good treatment. If I have the option, why not be treated well? So right. uh, I did that. And then my recruiter got to the end and I was qualified. I got like an 80 on the ASVAB and then I retook and got a 98 or something like that. Um, and they were like, we have to have you, like, we have to have you in, like, it's a thing. So I had to like talk to the Admiral of recruiting command and tell him my story to request a waiver to even join the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that
2: was approved. So here I am. That's awesome.
0: Right. And I can imagine like the, cause I've, I've dealt with some of those, uh, they call it the whole person concept waiver or the exception, to policy waiver. And most individuals you would have to like, they want to dig down into you as a, as a person down to your soul. Like who are you? What are your values and how can you help me? And then some of these guys, they would just like quit because they don't know themselves like that to say like, well, I am going to join and I want to make your service better and all the, the details that follow it. And yeah, so you're I'm essentially just, I'm,
2: trying to sell yourself, right? Yeah. So, but a lot yeah. of people, yeah, you're, you're right. A lot of people don't know how to sell themselves. Like, tell me how you can make my life better. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, I can tie my shoes. I can, you know, I just,
0: especially at 17, 18, you know, like what do you oh, as no a kidding. 17, 18 year old know about life and how to make things better. You know?
1: My daughter turned 18 last week, and let me tell you, she's got a lot of lessons left to learn.
2: (laughs) Oh, I I know for me, when I was that age, uh, I definitely still had a lot of lessons to learn in life, and still, every day you're learning. I had a uh, soccer coach in high school, and he was from Zambia, and he always said that uh, the day you stop learning is the day you're dead. Yeah. He goes, and if that day happens before you stop breathing, then you're just brain dead. I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: Wow. That is. It is. It's true. And it's a wonder in the digital age that we're able to take in so much information, get out, learn a thing or have access to things like podcasts, like we're doing here today, or audiobooks, or library of Congress or your local libraries, apps for that, that you can download, get free books and learn. And, you know, those of you listening that aren't, learning that aren't reading books i mean it's the ultimate life hack you've got someone that dedicated 10 to 40 years of their life on a topic they've distilled it in the book convinced a publisher to publish this thing and now if you read it in an afternoon or three afternoons you've then downloaded this person's entire experience into your being that's life hacking chunks of you know 20 year chunks every time you read a new book and for me, I don't really have the time to read. So I use net, which is no extra time to do other activities. So like driving back and forth to work, commuting uh, while I'm riding my bike or, or taking a run, which let me, let's be honest, there's more uh, bike riding than running in my future.
2: <laughs> That's <laughs> good because I'm, I'm the same way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> doing, doing chores around the house or even running errands. You can have someone feeding life into you, that new thing, that new business idea, that new concept, whatever the thing is. And in 2019, thanks to audiobooks, I went through 60 books in 2019. Wow.
2: Wow. That's awesome. What were some of the the highlighted books that uh, you would recommend?
1: Absolutely. All right. Take notes. You got to write this stuff down. If you're listening, you got to get the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. That really opened my eyes to the possibilities of business, what it looks like online, how to do things. And it's, it's hilarious and entertaining, so you're not going to get bored reading the book. And it brings a lot of these concepts to light that you might not have been exposed to if you've never been around someone in business or entrepreneurship. Uh, Number two is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. He is a lead FBI hostage negotiator, and he has tons of great stories there. And he breaks it down for not only hostage negotiation, which hopefully never comes in helpful for you, but also business and your personal life. Uh, It's really a way to... It's really a a huge lesson in communication and how to work through and navigate everyday problems of life. And then I'm sure there's going to be a third one out there. Uh, But man, I I haven't taken more notes since reading those two books than this book, uh, Raise Your Game with Alan Stein Jr. I had the fortune to... Interview him for my podcast, and it's not yet released. It's going to come out here in a few months. But this guy, Alistair Jr., worked with the late great Kobe Bryant and Kevin Durant and Steph Curry, and really builds wow. all those lessons down into three easy, bite-sized sections of player, coach, and team, and what that looks like to be a part of them. Because I always you know research my guests and, and do whatever I want. I was kind of upset with myself because it's really it's like 270 pages, which normally is an afternoon for me, but I was taking so much notes when I read this book, I couldn't stop. I couldn't get through it before I interviewed him. So our interview really only covers like the first three or four chapters of his book.
0: Wow. I mean, but that's, that's just, awesome. that's just so much of an impact, you know, that that's there. And especially the people that he's affected, you know, and I'm like, tell me more, feed me more. And, then and you kind of just, like, you kind of get stuck on the load.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So uh, you, you were, you started out as a, as an AME or a uh, equipment, aviation equipment tech. Uh, What sort of planes did you work on?
1: Well, so it's not aviation equipment tech. It's an aviation structural mechanic.
0: Structural mechanic, sorry, apologize.
1: Safety equipment. So I worked on F-18s and the E-6B Mercury. F-18s, the type of systems we worked on were canopies, ejection seats, oxygen, breathing systems, fire extinguishing systems, and environmental control systems. And on the E6B, there's no ejection seat. It's a big 707. Um, so we didn't have canopies or ejection seats, but we did have the interior of the airplane to add. We had a galley, the laboratory, oxygen systems, fire extinguishing, uh, and a few other extraneous systems.
2: That's interesting. So um, would you have to work engines and all that for uh, the fire, like working fire loops? Or does that fall under a different, um, does that fall under the mechanics for engine techs?
1: We learned the, the bleed air pipeline, right? So after like the fifth and ninth stage of the motor, because the, the ADs, the mechs had the engines, right? But after that, we took the bleed air to convert it to air conditioning for the jet. Uh, and then the fire extinguishing systems between the four main engines and the APU, that was our responsibility.
2: So you had essentially firewall forward, so to speak, as what you guys covered. Wow. What would be What was the worst job? I know working on aircraft, some of those uh ECS systems can be a bugger to uh, uh, yeah.
0: to yeah. deal with. Uh, so, like, so, of awesome. all the
2: systems you worked in and in, in the air, those airframes, what would have been the most difficult job for you to like if you got called out to the line for something? What was one you were like, damn it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like the, the hardest
2: one is probably the firewall shutoff
1: valve for the E6B. Uh, it's on top of the motor. So the motors hang down from the, the, the wing on a strut and you have to go in there and disassemble like 30 other things to get to this thing. And then it's bigger than the hole allotted. So you have to like move it, twist it inside the pipes to rip it out. I've done one of these. I've done one of these in, in 40 minutes, which is miracle time. And I've done one of these in 14 hours. <laughs>
2: Man, I, I I know your frustration because yeah, I've been there with certain pain. things too. And the whole time you're trying to take the component out, right? It was a it was a bear to get to, and then to find out the hole is undersized as as is typical in aviation. And you're just cursing the engineers the whole time, like, "Why, two more inches on this fucking panel?" <laughs> 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 growling, you know what I mean? You know the engineers are so excited that they got everything
1: to fit in there, and you go to take it apart, and you're like. You guys went to college, really? <laughs> how, how did
0: you get it in here in the first place?
2: <laughs> well, it look at my CAD drawing. Yeah, I'm sure it did. I'm really sure it did.
0: I think uh, I've had uh, a little bit of experience with the ECS system or like the fire control system. And one of the main problems I've come across is we would think it's the ECS system or it's the fire control system. And so we're like, all right, replace the valve or replace the the controller, whatever part of that system. When like, we just, we don't even think twice about the easy fix. Like, well, maybe the wire just got broken loose or maybe it's a bad relay or some shit. Like, no, change the valve. Okay. And so you go through all these disconnect 14, 46 other things to get to this valve or to this bad, so-called bad component. You put it together, same problem. And we do this like three or four times until we figure out, hey, maybe it's the, the relay or maybe it's the wire or the cannon plug, whatever the case may be. And you're chasing it around, chasing it around for sometimes days. And then we finally fix it. Well, we just wasted like four or five days worth of work.
2: <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, oftentimes in, in mission oriented um, operations, they... You know, control or whoever gets, uh, gets antsies and they start what I call the, the parts cannon or the parts shotgun. Yeah. Click, click, boom. Did that fix it? (laughs) Nope. Click, click, boom. Did that fix it? And you just keep going down the line. Whereas, like you said, if you'd have just taken 30 minutes and pinned out some cables, you might've figured out that, uh, you had a shorter, a fault in the harness somewhere. But I think it's one of those, like, it's got to look like we're doing something. So, you know, bring out the cannon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now, now Travis you you've uh, you've since transitioned to be a flight officer. What steps did you take to to go that way?
1: Uh well, it might might sound like some steps you might not have expected. There was a period in there I was a I was a first class or an E6 to those of you that are not familiar with what a first class is. I was teaching, I was at uh CNET Debt Tinker, so I was teaching our airplane, the E6 to the new guys coming in and a situation happened where someone checked in that I thought was kind of uh, a jackass. Mm-hmm. And I was in my mid-20s at this point. I had really matured in my life. And someone says, hey, look, you guys are brothers. You guys are not like the same person. And it was a shock to me. I didn't realize that everyone saw me like I just saw this guy. I thought I was being funny. Turns out I wasn't. Um, And I reevaluated my life. I changed out the the people I hung out with. And I looked at people that were doing things I wanted to do, people that cared about uh, their family life, people that cared about being good husbands and good fathers, people that cared about their education, were working hard on their careers, staying in shape, doing all those things. And when I did that, I realized that I wanted more. I wanted to do something differently. And this opportunity for the uh, State 21, the Seaman to Admiral Program came up. And I asked some questions about it and it sounded interesting. I asked a bunch of the old flight engineers by the old trusty guys out there, I was like, hey, did you guys ever think about doing this? And they're like, yeah, I did when I, when I was younger, but I really wanted to fly. And by the time I got back to it, I was too old. And I heard this a dozen times I was too old, too old, too old. I let the opportunity pass me by and I talked to my dad, uh, who is still in here, He just retired. He's a Boiler Tech first class, retired 20 six years in the Navy. I was like, hey, did you ever look into this? He's like, I did. And people told me to apply. I was like, well, what happened? Why didn't he? He's like, I wanted to make chief first. And I was delaying making chief before I put the application in. And every year I thought I had chief and every year went by and I didn't make it. So I never applied. So he let that hold him back. And he's like, look, if that's something you're interested in, apply don't let anyone stop you. So I did. I put in the application in i once I ran through that instruction uh, 50 times. And I ran through it 50 times more. I put my, my uh application together, which was some gargantuan like eight ninety six page application, it was <laughs> disgusting <Holy>
2: cow
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, but you know I, I had decided I was like, look i the average of making first class in my rate was eleven years, and I made it in seven, and it's not because I'm an amazing person. I just knew when those opportunities came up that my family needed more money. And mm-hmm. I only had one or two shots a year to make this happen for them. And if I wasn't doing that, I was being a bad father.
2: Wow. Right. I to regardless of the what
1: it meant for my military career and more responsibility and all that other crap. Because whenever the Navy is gone, whenever the military is gone, you're left with your family. Is it intact? Do they love you? Or is it in shambles? Or are you split apart? And you get to choose that based on the things that you do. And so I decided, Look, I'm going to be an officer because the average for making chief in my rate was 17 years. <sighs> And wow. I was at my nine-year mark. I was another nine years away, eight years, nine years away from this thing. And I say, like, all right, I'm going to apply for this. If that doesn't work, I'm going to apply to be a limited duty officer. If that doesn't work, I'm going to finish my degree and go through OCS. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to join the Army and do their OCS or whatever they call it in the Army. Mm-hmm. And when you're determined, when you've determined what it is that you're going to do and you've chosen, you have that clarity, all the pieces fall in place and everything lines up. So that first application I did for Seaman Admiral Program they said yes. And I got accepted my first time out of the shoot, which I was pretty shocked, especially just a year earlier. People called me a jackass.
2: Wow. That, and just, what, how, just how short of a time you can turn your life around um, and, and, and really focus on your goals and, and make those happen.
0: Yeah. No kidding. So you're, you're now in the semen to admin program. Um, that's kind of like, uh, it's almost like what you said with OCS, right? Or ROTC, where you, you go to college first, you get your degree, and you kind of do a little bit of officer training prior to actually graduating. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. You do a couple of eight weeks up in Rhode Island at the War College. You get... They, you have eight required courses, I believe. It's been a, it's been a hot minute. So eight required courses, we go through six of them in eight weeks to get the college credit done for those. So when you go to school, because you have a, a shorter time period than the people coming in fresh. So I went to school full time, knocked out the other two, and finished my degree. All in all, that took me about a year and a half to do my get my degree done uh, and get commissioned. Then once I got commissioned, sent me down to Pensacola to go through the basic flight training. You've got. You go through a civilian flight school and you get your solo done. So I've flown an airplane by myself, which was super terrifying.
2: <laughs> flying a little Cessna all on your own. I can imagine. <laughs> no, no
0: sim time before you got on the stick. What's that? No, you didn't. Did you do any simulator yes, training yeah,
1: part? It's all part of it. You go through ground school, you go through the flight school, you go through time with an instructor. So you're at it. You've got like 13 hours of flying completed before you go flying by yourself and you've done all the schooling, all the training. Uh, but 13 hours doesn't, sure doesn't feel like enough, I tell
0: you what. In a previous episode we had with uh, an Army wa- a flight warrant officer, they said from the time they get there to the time they're in the seat is like zero. <laughs> Here you go, get in the seat, go. Uh, so when you're saying at least 13 hours of previous training before you actually get into the seat, I would... That well, 13 my... hours
1: in the seat with an instructor, plus oh, okay. all the ground schools all completed, all that stuff is all done ahead of time. But 13 hours doesn't feel like enough, in my opinion. Oh,
0: I can't sure, I,
2: I, 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 I can agree with you on that. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely agree with you on that, because I feel like after 13 hours, I'd still struggle with a little quadcopter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, And then you go through API, Aviation Pre-Flight Indoctrination. And this is one of the toughest schools in the military to get through. There's something every year There's between 40% and something like 70% attrition through the school uh, and it's hard. It's tough. You've got, uh, it's master's degree rules. So if you get a 79, it's a failure. You're wow. going through the swimming course at the same time. We, at the end of it, you'd go through all the swimming. You need to be an aviator and you have to swim a mile, go through the helo dunker, all that stuff. And you're doing it all simultaneously. Well, most of the guys there are fresh out of college and they've got nothing better to do. I'm down there with my wife and two kids trying to get all this stuff done. Get up at four in the morning, start studying, get the kids out to school, go to class, go swimming, go back to class, go swimming, go back to class, study for a little bit, go home, get the kids from school, get their homework done, get them dinner, get them bathed, get them in bed, study till midnight, do it again.
2: Wow, <laughs> man, that's uh, mentally tough, tough. I mean, physically as well with all the swimming and, and things you have to do. But but I to me, I always think mental exhaustion is worse than the physical from my own personal perspective so yeah with all that studying and stuff going on yeah the physical you're out swimming your 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 muscles are burning everything else but then to have to come home and you know instead of just going to sleep like nope i got four more hours of of plowing through books to go you know to get through before i can go to bed
1: yeah, yeah, if you weren't tired enough, you know, try to stay awake while reading some of that stuff. Right. Uh, but you go through that school and then you go through primary. And if you're a naval flight officer, you stay in Pensacola and go across base. It's the same hangar right next to the Blue Angels where their, their winter home is. Um, and you go in there and you go through contact ground school and you go through a series of flights and then you do instrument school. And instrument school was the place where I almost quit. Your the instructors. there are all retired, like, Oh, fives and above. They've got thousands of hours in the airplane. And they've got years worth of instruction and wherever you're at as a student, if you're at a, if you're at a four, their goal is to make you a seven. If you're at a six, their goal is to make you a nine. If you're a nine, their goal is to make you a 13. So they're going to push you no matter where you're at. And I had three, uh, two or three bad Sims in a row and I was like, look, like, Lord, if I'm not supposed to be here, this is a very clear indication that I can't make it happen. You let me know if I have another bad one of these, I'm going to have to hang it up. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't get through it. And I went, I had my motorcycle at the time. I had my, you know, my helmet bag and stuff. And I went in to do a SIM and I got to uh, the SIM school and I hopped off my motorcycle and my flight bag was gone. Oh, and I was dope. going in to do a sim event and it was the one right after I had done a bunch of stuff and I hopped back on the bike and I hightailed it back. It wasn't that far. And I went back through and the bag was nowhere, nowhere oh. to be found. So I went to the instructor cause I got there a couple hours early. I want to make sure I had everything in order to say, look, I just lost all of my books. I lost all my prep. I lost all of my everything. What do I need to do for this sim today? How, how can I get this thing done? And he's like, well, you gotta run over here. I had to run a couple different places on base to get all the books I need. I did the charts. I get the charts, you know, charted out for all the stuff I was gonna do to remember to do all those things. And then right before the sim started, I got a call and uh, turns out a retiree found my flight bag. And had called into the base, and because I had a prescription bottle in there for something, I don't know, might all at this point, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had my name on it. So when I called in, they're like, Is this you? I'm like, Yes. So I knew the stuff was safe. Went ahead and, and knocked out the sim, and I crushed it because I had gone over everything at least twice, right? Mm-hmm. And crushed it, got the bag, and then it was really smooth sailing from there uh, through graduation. And then on to the final school, uh, which is with your specific aircraft. Uh, and then I got my wings, which if we're looking at the video here, there's a little cut out of my wings right above my head there.
2: Nice. nice. Yeah. And that doesn't even include seer school.
0: <laughs> oh, here we go. Oh, man. Learning how to kill rabbits and eat bird eyes and stuff.
2: <laughs> so you said you went to, uh, you had to finish your degree in about a year and a half. Um, where did you where did they end up sending you for that degree? Or was it Annapolis? Did you go to Annapolis? I know you said you went to Rhode I Island for a bit. Any
1: any participating college. I was in so the E six B Mercury is stationed at Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. And to avoid moving, I went down to the University of Oklahoma down in Norman, which was, you know, 15 miles from my house. Finished up there, you know, family got to stay, got to avoid a move. You know, I'm very big about avoiding moves if I don't have to do them. Sure. sure. Um did, did did there? Did three? Did a fall? What did I do? Summer, fall, spring, summer, fall. Graduate. So I did five semesters of college and graduated. Wow! Nice.
2: That's pretty fast. Congratulations.
1: Thanks so much. Uh, and that makes me the first person in my family to
2: graduate college. Wow! Congratulations. That's fantastic. Setting setting the bar high. Yeah, no kidding, Brian. Too. Well, that's good though. <laughs> give give people uh, give your kids and say, look dad did all this stuff. Uh, I can do it too. That's right.
0: Now, since you became a Naval flight officer, uh, what was the transition like going from being an aviation structures tech to being a pseudo pilot or a a flight officer?
1: (laughs) Pseudo pilot. Uh, the transition was tough because no one cared that I already had 12 years of experience in the Navy. That was already a first class. That uh, was hard for me to get by because in my community, as the instructor I was teaching, everyone knew who I was. They called me when they couldn't solve their their you know miracle thing they needed. They would call me and I would solve it. And everyone knew who I was. They understood my experience, they understood my authority. And to go back to being an O one, ain't no one care about any of that stuff.
0: Right. You're just the the lieutenant, or uh, in your case, ensign. You're just the lost ensign who can't read a map, right?
1: Yeah, you're just the answer that can't do anything. And the really the thing that kind of that kind of killed me like it still hurts me personally is my biggest attribute has been and, and likely always will be you know communication and leadership. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out as a junior officer in the Navy, they don't care about your leadership at all, especially in aviation. They don't care until you're a department head, until you've gone out and done some things because that's the natural progression of everyone else. You really haven't learned enough to be a leader. So my main focus was leadership. And what I didn't know until it was far too late is that they don't care about that at my rank. They care about uh, being a techni- being technically proficient and being an expert at your job, at your mission, your tactical qualification. And I didn't know that. Uh but no one told me and no one told a lot of people. The only difference is the other people have nothing else to focus on because they have no leadership experience or ability. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was getting in, in the way of of some of my career, not knowing that little factoid, which would have been super helpful.
2: <laughs> so how did you how did you um, how did you overcome that then using, you know, using your leadership to then all but still being able to use your leadership abilities? but also becoming more technically proficient at your specific job, kind of blending those two together to show uh, your superiors that, Hey, you do have what it takes. Um, Yes. You're learning and becoming more proficient, but look, I I also am capable of more than just being technically proficient.
1: I I took whatever they gave me and I turned it into, into gold. Here is a, a muddy pile of garbage. What are you going to do with it? And some people would just dry out the garbage. Some people would tidy up the garbage. It turned into straight gold for them. I used my experience that I did have. And I went back to the same community that I was enlisted in. So I knew a lot of the senior leadership. And I leveraged my network to help with the things that I shouldn't be doing. Right? I used them mm-hmm. to do what I focused my time and doubled down on what I needed to know and learn and be proficient at. And I left there fully qualified. It was a combat systems officer, instructor, and mission commander on a half a billion dollar nuclear command and control platform.
0: Wow. That's awesome. So um, have you ever run into a situation where an officer, a fellow officer thinks that you're just a run, another run of the mill officer, but you had to flex your experience on him or kind of demonstrate that you know what the system is, you know how to fix it. And you're, and you're you're more than what meets the eye. Uh,
1: I've had to do that a few times. One I had to deal with with an enlisted guy uh, in the AT shop. I was the avionics division officer, which is not a big fancy title, but I went in there. I uh, just to have lunch with the guys and get to know them and understand, you know, who who I was and who we were working for. And uh, one of the young bucks, like maybe an E four, was kind of jacking his jaw a little bit and running his mouth. And my buddy who would for you know, ten years or more, he like jumps out of his office and like looks to see what's going on. I looked over and was like hey, chief, do you want me to take care of this? And he's like, no, sir. No, I don't. I will <laughs> talk to him. And I left and I came back the next day and he was uh, uh, groveling and mumbling. It's like, oh, sir, I didn't I didn't know. I had no idea who you were in this and that. I was like, oh, so you treat other junior officers like garbage too? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> Megan no. was can stumble on their own words. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. you know,
1: sometimes those those lessons are necessary. I haven't really had to raise my voice as an officer, which is fantastic. It turns out if you have to raise your voice in an officer, you've already lost control and mm-hmm. respect of the people around you anyway. Um, so I haven't had to do that unless it conserves safety. So I've had to raise my voice a couple of times in safety. But really, most people are intelligent enough and motivated enough to get whatever you need done you just got to make sure they understand what the heck you're talking about and that your expectations are set and once those are done especially in the military it's pretty easy stuff gets done and and things move forward so i haven't had to do that too much
2: right that's good it reminds me of that uh one line from uh, game of thrones A, a true king doesn't have to say he's king very true you know what i mean you're you're uh your presence and leadership speak for themselves here, your, your uh, what do they say? It, uh, your reputation, reputation precedes you.
1: Yeah. Anyone that says I'm funny, I'm not a scumbag. I'm in charge. All those things are lies because you shouldn't have to say any of those things to be true.
2: Right. Exactly.
0: Right. Yeah. Now, uh, you also run, uh, the nonprofit architect, which helps other nonprofit organizations grow, start up for one growing and help reach their goals, whichever their goals may be. What, prompted you, prompted you to start doing nonprofit work?
1: Well, a lot of it was my childhood, right? There was, there's no way. So what, what the piece that we've left out of this is the reason why I moved so many times. Mm -hmm. The reasons why I moved so many times is my mom suffered from bipolar disorder, dissociative identity disorder, PTSD, and paranoid schizophrenia. Um, So every time she needed treatment, we would have to go live either with a family member or in a foster home. And then when she got of treatment, we'd go somewhere else and move. So, you know, going into and out of treatment, whether it was a week or six months, included three moves or two moves. You know, wherever you are, to the place you're staying, to some new place when you get out, because obviously you're not paying your rent the whole time you are in treatment.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh,
1: but there was always someone, some organization, some church to keep us sheltered, clothed, and fed. And when I finally got to a point where I wasn't in scarcity and survival mode, I wanted to be part of the community. I was like, I didn't know how to be part of it. Like, what do we do in the community? Like, what do people do? And they're like, well, people volunteer and they do nonprofit stuff and they give and they serve on boards and different things. And I went to where those things were. I didn't know what I was doing. I just know that I could show up and have a good attitude, which is most of life, right? Showing up and having a good attitude Mm -hmm. and be willing to help. And as soon as I did that, I <laughs> published my first book. I got on the board of two nonprofits. I started doing uh, some fundraising, raised half a million bucks in just a couple of years. Uh, did some wonderful things. And then I got stationed out in Bahrain, this little island back here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how am I supposed to keep doing all this cool nonprofit stuff? And someone's like, well, you do have like a golden voice. I was like, oh, do I? You
2: know, <laughs> smooth so, jazz talk radio.
1: Yeah, yeah, talk radio. This is late night jams with Taco John. You know,
2: <laughs> I think you're onto something. Wait, you I got, go I'm onto
1: something here. So I started hosting a, an interview show, bringing on nonprofit. Uh, leaders, business leaders, consultants, and people with just the special skills to help nonprofit do stuff better with it. Figuring out five, you know, Facebook lives or MailChimp or how to get celebrities to stump for your show. We had Vincent James come on and he showed us how he uses Keep Music Alive and the voices and uh, video from Julie Andrews, Jack Black, Sarah McLachlan, Vanessa Williams to help him promote his nonprofit. Wow. Yeah,
2: that's pretty cool. What was the first nonprofit or, uh, organization you, you worked with before you know, obviously starting your own?
1: Uh, so I don't currently run a nonprofit at all.
2: Oh, okay. I've
1: never, I've never done that, but I worked with Books by Vets, and they help veterans or first responders heal through telling their story. And we published a couple of books, a couple of anthologies. Walk with Warriors, and the primary author you can find us on Amazon if you want to, uh, Shannon Whittington, and one of the chapters in there is me talking about my garbage childhood and some other things in the military. Um, and then we helped. So with that book, we helped 22 veterans tell their story. Every chapter was a different veteran telling their story. And then we released resilient warriors the next year, which was 22 female veterans sharing their story. Uh, and you want to hear some gut wrenching stuff, horrendous, horrendous stories. Go ahead and check out resilient warriors also by Shannon Whittington. Um, wow. Wow. I did, I did editing in like 16 of those chapters and you want to talk about comparing stories. I was, I was hurting reading those chapters.
2: Wow. Well, I can imagine. So um, like you said, everybody's story is a little different. You, you learn from reading, hearing and reading others that uh, just how, how uh, horrible people can be from time yeah. to time. Yeah. But glad that those individuals were able to share their stories, uh, hopefully get a little closure and maybe some healing out of it as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's not just individual healing, right? Anyone that gets to read that story is going to get a little bit of themselves healed too. And that's the real value of sharing your story. As soon as you can let go of your pain, Mm -hmm. as long as you're holding it, you're you're just, it's like, you're hugging a cactus. You're just stabbing yourself while you're holding this thing. And yeah, if you wiggle it around a little bit, it hurts, but man, it's not going to heal till you let it go.
0: Right. That's a very good analogy. Now you as the architect, What are some things or what are the top things to consider when, say, someone is deciding to start a nonprofit and then comes to you to help them uh, grow out?
1: Sure, absolutely. So things to consider is that you might not want to start a nonprofit. And it's kind of shocking to some people. Really, when people say that, that they oh, I want to start a nonprofit, Um, that's not what they're really saying. What they're really saying is I have a group of people or the environment or animals or something that I want to help make better. And I currently believe the best way to do that is by starting my own organization, which may or may not be true, right? What most people that don't start with or that do start when they don't realize is how to keep with IRS compliance and, and starting a nonprofit, all the paperwork goes into that. And they have no idea how to run a business because you incorporate as a business before you get nonprofit tax status because your 501C is a tax status, not a business plan. It's like you get your 501c3 and then money just rains from the heavens and you can help all the people, right? Most most (laughs) nonprofits don't make an impact in their first five years. They have no real impact. So if you're looking to make impact, figure out what it is that you want to do, find out who else is doing it, and then do it with them. They've already gone through the pain of creating an organization, starting the paperwork, filing with the IRS. You can just show up and feel good.
2: (laughs) You can just show up and help. That's a good point, Brent. Bring your good ideas to somebody who else who's done done the initial legwork, and then take that existing organization and and put it leaps and bounds ahead with uh, with your input. Yeah,
1: absolutely. absolutely. You want to have that impact, that feeling that can that contribute. you want to contribute to society. Uh, what you might find is no one else is doing that. And there's some other things you can do. Like the United Way, they're a brig umbrella. And they'll allow you to start a program underneath their 501c3. So you can be a program manager for the thing that you want to do, delivering services. And they have all the paperwork and compliance and stuff that they have to deal with. And you get to be boots on the ground that so many of us like doing. Uh, but you've done your diligence. You found out that people aren't providing these services. United Way is not available. Maybe an organization in another state is looking to branch out into your area, and then you can be the person there, which is much cheaper to do. They've got the national certification, right? They've got it. If you're listening to this and you're a nonprofit, there's 33 states that require uh registering as a 501c3 to operate in. So if you're operating in more than one state and you're not registered in that state, you've got to file the paperwork for that state if that's required. Um, but you can start the chapter in your state. So you can have all their logos, all their branding, all their, their tax ID number, all the bylaws, all of the things that are pain to create, you can just get from someone else and create your own little chapter there. Uh, and there's so many organizations that do that. I just had a meeting the other day with the, the Batlin Bettys, which is a group of uh, pinup gals that go around with hijinks and you know doing good stuff to veterans and first responders and having a lot of fun. Uh, their main office is out of Texas and we're in Oklahoma and they're working on the paperwork to get official here in Oklahoma so they can do that without the IRS being a, being a, a pain like they can be.
2: <laughs> for sure, <laughs> for
0: sure, I can imagine. And I think uh, with nonprofits, uh, one of their biggest issues that they run into is funding or money. Uh, what would be some of the things you would say for uh, a nonprofit, either a not having any money or struggling to get said funding?
1: Sure, uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and answer this. But like the three main areas of starting a nonprofit are admin—that's your board, that's your executive director—that's compliance with the IRS. Then you've got programs, which is the fun stuff right? Delivering services to the people in need. And then the third leg of that is funding. And if you don't have those three things at least started or, or pseudo figured out before you start, you're going to have problems. Funding is the one that's the biggest problem. And that's the one that we help with the most at the nonprofit architect. And you know how it seems like nonprofits are just chasing, spending all their time chasing a buck to, to make things happen. You know Our, our programs are designed to automate funding each and every month. So you can say no to more work and say yes to more donations.
2: Wow. Oh, interesting. Now, is there a a website or you you said there's other groups available um, for somebody looking to get into it? Is there a kind of a one-stop shop that has most nonprofits or organizations listed that you can go through and say, Hey, I'm, I'm interested in this, or I want to get involved in whatever. And, and you can kind of go through there and see who's located where and contact info. So I'm assuming mostly
1: veterans listen to this show is just my guess. Uh, There's a great organization called the afteractionnetwork.org, afteractionnetwork.org. They have a compilation of lists of every service in your area, what it takes to apply for those services, uh, if you're someone that's in need, or has contact information if you want to help them out. If you're wanting to get involved and you're not sure what to do, go to your local what is it called center for nonprofits and your chamber of commerce and see who's in your area. You can, you can of course, you know, donate to or volunteer for a big national organization, but those don't really have the same impact as someone in your local community might have. So if you're looking for to make an impact to get involved and do something good, find whoever it is in your area, doing things either through the center of nonprofits or the chamber of commerce, or you know, by asking me at your as your last resort, like you've done those first two, and as your last resort, um, to figure out you know how you can pitch in and do something good.
0: So, so where can one, either military or not, find you to help them either a get started on their nonprofit or to grow their nonprofit influence?
1: I am on Facebook most often. You can find me on any social media, Nonprofit Architect. You can search on Google, the Nonprofit Architect podcast. And I think I'm like the first 30 results. Uh, So that makes it easy. Um, My SEO is off the chain, guys, off the chain. Uh, And then you can send me an email at nonprofitarchitect at gmail.com. Or you can go to my website, nonprofitarchitect.org.
0: Now, I've heard you also have a what's called a Nonprofit Alliance. Uh, where can we find that one?
1: Uh, the Nonprofit Alliance is on hold, and that is not a thing as of this very moment. But what we do have for people that are interested, uh, we have podcasting guide that's available. Uh, and this podcasting guide, I, I bought one of these things when I was getting started. It was like 27 bucks. And I was really disappointed when I got it. It had like six pages. It was kind of like a do this, do this, do this, but it didn't have any context. It didn't have any how to, didn't have any reasons why. Uh, and it really was frustrating that I spent $27 on something that yeah, maybe didn't help me so much. Uh, so I created my own podcast guide, the ultimate podcasting guide. And it's got, 46 pages of how to, why, how to monetize, what you should name your show, why, how often should I post, how do I find guests, how do I be an expert guest, how do I monetize this thing? I've got templates that show you how to do all this stuff, how to contact celebrities, how to send out an email, what all this stuff looks like. Uh, And I kept it the same price, that $27 that I feel like I lost out on. And this thing is getting some buzz. I got calls immediately about a course and now I have my course, under review for accreditation. And what that means is you could take it at a college and get college credit. It might be a certification, an official certification from the USD. Uh, it's going to be big and looking, it's looking pretty amazing right now.
0: Congratulations on that. We're we're happy to have your ebook, matter of fact, and let, gentlemen, I'll share this with you as well. It's a very, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's uh, informative. It's probably like the most informative uh, guide that you could possibly
2: have. Yeah that's awesome. Keep us posted uh, if you would wouldn't mind Travis on on your uh, course. I'd be interested in uh signing
1: Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Uh, that We're building that out right now. And the only thing that's frustrating about this conversation is I don't have this thing all automated on my website yet. So if you want this thing, drop me a line. Go to nonprofitarchitect.org and be like, Travis, give me your guide. I heard it's amazing. Uh, I don't have the one-click buy and stuff set up yet. I'm still getting messages. I'm getting messages from people I've never met that are saying, hey, I heard your podcast guide is amazing. Send it to me. Uh, 27 bucks. You're going to know to going from idea to startup, to execution, to how to market this thing, how to create little headliner promos that you can use in your social media for promotion, how to get this thing on to YouTube and everything else in between.
0: Very, Very awesome. cool.
2: Fantastic. Uh,
0: Travis, do you have any other, uh, nuggets of knowledge do you want to share with all the listeners out there, both veterans and non?
1: Yes. Uh, everything that you do in your life comes down to choice. And if you've made bad choices in the past, you can't do anything about them. You can apologize, you can forgive them, you can forgive yourself, you can move forward, but make better choices. If you're not educating yourself, educate yourself, whether that's formally through some kind of degree program or certificate program or informally through podcasts, audiobooks. And if you are a nonprofit out there and you're not educating yourself, you are doing the people you're trying to serve a disservice because you're not learning how to do it better, how to do it cheaper, how to do it more effectively, how to free every time, how to build a team, how to have all that stuff. If you're not developing yourself, you're just wasting away. You're, you're not doing things right. I know MBP brought that up a little bit earlier. You've got to be developing yourself. There's not a chance in hell that I, I should have been where I am. There's not a chance right? I had the slimmest of chances. Five foster homes, just that number alone puts me in this huge category of people that don't make it for whatever reason. See, you can take whatever's given before you and you can decide, I'm going to follow this example or I'm going to reject this example. There's a famous story with two brothers. One is an alcoholic and one is the Fortune 500 CEO. And you ask both of them why they are that way. Their answer is the same. You see, my father was an alcoholic. I had no choice. So they both had the choice. One had the choice, and he chose to reject it completely. And he vaunted himself up to be a Fortune 500 CEO. And the alcoholic brother said he had no choice. He had to be exactly like his dad. That's garbage. You have the choice to do it right, to do it better. You have the choice to go to the gym. You have the choice to do push-ups in your house if you can't afford a gym. You have the choice to go to the library and read free books you have the choice to go on YouTube and learn the skill you need to do. Whatever the thing is, you have the choice to do it. You just have to be the one to do it. No one cares about your life more than you. No one cares about your career more than you do. No one cares about your family more than you do. And if you're not caring, you're not doing it right.
0: That's awesome. That's a very strong message. Well said. Very well said. Very well said. Travis, it was such an honor to have you onto the show. Uh, we've learned so much in the short amount of time we were talking with you i'm like my life's changed already just from all the stuff you shared and i'm pretty sure anyone else listening to this they have some idea of how to go forward both within themselves and with the community they're with and then also how to find you or take some of the information that you shared to make what they want to get going move forward
1: hey it was a lot of fun thanks for having me on the show today fellas
2: of course thank you yeah i appreciate you coming on uh Travis, a.k.a. Mr. Taco John, uh, your story is one of uh, one of a lot of highs and lows. Um, fortunate. It's been a lot more highs than lows, but uh, you're definitely an inspiring individual to uh, make me you know, want to be a uh, better at my career, better father at home, uh, and better uh, active member of the community. So uh, thank you for your time and uh, your wisdom. Thanks a
1: lot,
0: guys. Thanks again. We'd like to thank our patrons for supporting our show and allowing us to keep producing episodes, bring on guests like Travis, and keep Shoreline ever happy to produce our show. With special thanks to Erica Lamont, Chris Hawkins, Stephanie Boatman, Jenny Dignan, Ryan Frushauer, Daniel Schubert, and Steven Shivers. Thank you all, our patrons, so much for all your support and, again, your patronage. If you have ideas, topics, or stories for the show, or you would like to be a guest on the show, visit CancelForMaintenance.com and drop us a line on our Contact Us section. We will do whatever we can to get you and or your ideas onto the show. Check out our sponsor, Rockwell Time, for all sorts of outdoors and sporting apparel such as watches, safety rated sunglasses, and snowboarding goods. Visit RockwellTime.com, use code cx 4MX and save 10% off your purchases. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash cancel for maintenance. Patronage again allows us to continue making episodes and maintain our gear. Patrons also get exclusive perks such as access to our Discord and discounts to our upcoming merch.